I'm Arlen Hamilton, and this is Your First Million. I'm a venture capitalist. I started my fund Backstage Capital from the ground up while I was on food stamps. I have now invested in more than 100 companies led by women, people of color, and LGBT founders. After having raised more than $10 million, people often ask me how I did it. I created this podcast so I could tell you my story and so that together we could go on a journey and speak with some of the most successful people in the world from all backgrounds and walks of life to learn how they got their first million. And who knows, maybe I'll reach my first million in personal capital while I'm recording this series. There's only one way to find out. Let's go. Hi, everyone. It's Arlen. Welcome back to your first million. Today's episode is with Henrik Wordelin, and I'm, I'm saying that the best I can. Henrik says it so much better than I do. It was really fun to do this interview in New York a few weeks ago. Henrik was an integral part of MTV Europe several years ago, and he'll talk more about that in the interview. And today he is the founder of Bark. Bark is like one of these major pet companies and it's growing and it's just like a really great success story. He's also a co-founder or a partner at a place called Prehype, which kind of partners VCs, entrepreneurs, corporations in Europe. He was born in Denmark, lives in New York, and just has a really interesting story about building a life for yourself over a couple of decades and putting yourself in a really leveraged position through essentially a lot of hard work, showing up every day, um, making those right connections and treating people well, and then having a lot to show for it and a lot of years in front of you too. So I love this one. It's very practical. It is very interesting in my view, and I, I learned a lot from this one. A lot of our listeners really love the type of episode where you can crack open a notebook and take down some some gems and take down some really practical advice, and this is one of those. So really excited for you all to listen. Hopefully you're on a commute or you're cleaning the house or, or cooking or running or doing something that I'm making a little less... Uh, of a heavy lift, maybe even literally. I hear from you all the time that people are doing all kinds of things when they're listening. So I really, really enjoy having you as listeners. And and I'll say it again, I'm stoked. You make me stoked. So this week, a lot happening all at once. We're, we've, we've kicked off the new year. People are back in the groove. I can't tell you how many emails I've received since January 1st, but it's in the thousands and thousands and um, playing catch up there as we're all probably very familiar with. I feel still feel optimistic off of the new year. You know, that that time going into the new year is always kind of filled with something. It's so sometimes it's despair, as we talked about in one of my episodes around Christmas. But a lot of times it is this newfound optimism. And then sometimes that kind of dips I've found that it's only gotten stronger because of individuals like you who listen to the podcast and people that I interact with online and in person. I'm just constantly reinvigorated and refueled and re-inspired by you all. And I hope that you all are feeling that way too in your own ways. But yeah, this year is going to be pretty bonkers. 
I look forward to sharing it with you with this new book that you're going to hear about forever. It's just the way it is. But with that new book also comes a lot of adventure. And I'm so excited to take you along with me on that adventure. And uh, we're going to have a lot of fun. So I hope you enjoy this episode. As always, get in touch. Let me know what you're thinking. Reach out to me. My contact information is at the end of this episode. And if you didn't get a chance to go back and listen to the last episode we dropped, which was a special presentation of What the Fockery. It's a really cool podcast and I played it in our stream. And what it is, is basically an interview with me. So the tables have turned if you're at all interested in more about uh, how I would answer certain questions. And I've heard from you that you like the the format, so we're going to do more of that. Just let me know what you think, and please enjoy this one. Thanks again, Henrik. Okay, so your, your resume or your background is just pretty stunning. One thing that jumped out to me, what did you do at MTV? I guess I made my career there by breaking into the studio and transmitting our live TV. And so that was kind of like how I got my my cred. Yeah. Uh, was that US or Europe? No, that was Europe. So I was a producer back in the day. I did radio documentaries at the BBC. And I this is like back in the late 90s. And I got introduced by some to somebody from MTV and I got an internship there. And uh, somebody heard that I knew about the internet and uh, asked if I'd come up with a show. And I came up with a show and everybody thought it was a, a shitty idea. So I was like, I will show them. And so back then you didn't get sued for, for kind of like working around the rules. And so I convinced the transmission engineer to go live at two in the morning and we transmitted the show. And, wow. Uh, so it wasn't scheduled to happen. No, it was definitely not. And the next day there was emails going around like, what was the show? There's people calling about it. And, and, uh, what was the show? So this is like late nineties, right? So this is before most of the TV stations have websites and stuff like that. And so it sounds very obvious now, but at the time I wanted to show user generated content in between music videos the problem is that if you show a presenter in the same environment as a internet kind of component, it looks like two different worlds. And so I came out of this idea of taking a camera and then filming a presenter and then writing some code that would make the presenter look like a, like a flash animation an animation online. And then the presenter could then talk about these things that users have sent mm. us. And then it would look kind of cool. And that would be in between music videos. And it would also have the advantage, instead of using a huge studio, we kind of like programmed it through a computer and the producers just had like a weatherman kind of like button. And so we would save a lot of money producing it. Well, you said you you just whipped up some code and you sent it out there and you did all that. And that's the, the, the sending it out without permission is f- both fascinating and something that we all should think about ourselves. But the code part, how does the learning to code part happen during that time or before that time when it, it, not everyone is doing it? So I'm not a very good coder. Like I, I started back on the internet before it was kind of back then it was called Fidonet and Veronica and mm. Mosaic and and uh, and stuff like that. And so I got onto kind of like nets kind of before the internet. And so I always knew and was about it and was intrigued about like how it was used as a tool, but never been a very good coder. So this specific code, I, I found somebody who I could learn to help me do it and, and I got him to do it. And so I've never been somebody who coded or designed or did any of those. Mm. I always did a little bit 
I, I knew it a little bit. So yes. enough to be able to kind of like figure out how I could tie the whole thing together. You knew the language enough to, to, to get around. Yeah. And like if somebody deployed code on GitHub, I can kind of download and look at it. But like, I, I, I wouldn't be very good at kind of changing yeah. it. I mean, that's actually quite a, a talent and it's, it's similar to what I think I have, which is I'm not going to be the one out there singing, but I can tell you if you're a good singer, right? <laughs> yeah. Like I'm not going to, I can put the right people together and the right tools together. I think as a, you know, many ways, that's a good kind of trait of a founder, right? Mm. You, you often need to know a lot of different things instead of kind of being super specialized because so often as the ideas kind of start to take shape, you kind of need to pick kind of like a, you need to change a little bit of the design, a little bit of the code and a little bit of all these different things. Yeah. I had that flexibility of thought. How long do you stay at MTV then? I was there on and off for almost seven years. And so. they didn't fire you that, they that didn't next fire day. No. This was back when MTV only had one channel full of Europe and it was pretty rock and roll back then. And yeah. so, uh, no, I didn't get fired. I, I got promoted. They made me a head of product development. And so... Uh, but the show did well. The show did well. The idea went- the, the idea went well. The show did well. And we went on to do a lot of things. That was kind of first, again, like this sounds very dated. It makes me sound like I'm super old, but like we came up with SMS to TV and a lot of, we started a lot of mobile games, uh, kind of studios and stuff like that. Yeah. And so, uh, so probably yeah. influenced a lot of people today as well. <laughs> I'm not you, sure, you- but I hope so. We definitely tried. Yeah, I would hope so. And then, so where do you go right after that? So after that, I uh, joined some guys and we started a company in the media space back in Europe and they had started a big company before. And so we raised a lot of capital and kind of like tried to build a, a media business. And I spent some years that and we ended up kind of selling it, but not anything big. And so I didn't really know what to do and where to work. And, and I got offered to be an entrepreneur in residence at a, at a VC firm. And a big fund in, in the UK? A big fund in the UK. Yeah. They're both here in, in, the, in the UK and San Francisco called Index Ventures. And then uh, I always had like a love for New York. And so after about a year there, I was like, okay, I'm going to New York. And there I ran into some people who were starting a company called Hot Potato that uh, was kind of a mobile app. And they ended up selling it pretty quickly to Facebook. And so they all went to uh, the West Coast and I stayed here and started pre-hype and then BarkBox, uh, old Bark, which yeah. is my uh, my baby. What do you consider uh, a turning point for you when it comes to an inflection point that you started seeing success, like true success? Was it back at the MTV days or was that still just learning and finding your way? I think I've always been, yeah, I think we all have imposter syndrome up the who's right? And, and are nervous. And I think... When you think back of it, you probably could have claimed success a little bit earlier. You know, I'm not sure that I still kind of like feel I can claim kind of massive success, right? I, I think, uh, I think you know, like these things are difficult. We, we are all entrepreneurs and we all try to just pitch this kind of version of the future. And we always live like six months ahead of ourselves. And, and so um, I think in many ways, maybe when I got married and mm. then kind of could calm down a little bit there. Uh, yeah. When was that? Uh, I got married. You can just my... do the year. You don't have to do the day. <laughs> <laughs> ten years ago. Ten years ten ago. Ten years Almost ago. Almost ten years ago. Okay. Yeah. Uh, and how old are you? I'm 43. Okay. So early 30s, things start to fall in place and make a little bit more sense to yes. where you were going to be going. And what what part of your career path were you at that moment as well? Was that the working at Index? Yeah. So yeah. Uh, I guess we were. I was still in the startup. This was just before we joined Index, and so. She had done a more interesting career path than me in many ways because she was in visual effects. Oh, what's her name? Uh, she's called Meta. Okay. Um, so she was in visual effects and was doing very well for herself, working on 
Harry Potter and movies. And, and as we moved here, she found out that she didn't have a, you know, there wasn't really like a, a step up for her here. Mm-hmm. Cause you said Harry Potter. She, she, yeah, so you she said wore, that kind of casually, like visual <laughs> effects for Harry so, yeah, Potter. She That's works a, on the, on the visual big. effects team. It is a big team. Yeah. Uh, but, um, so she pivoted and is now studying to be a bioscientist. Oh and yes. So, uh, so few of us. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Yeah. That's great. So then did you enjoy investing? I mean, I guess you were an entrepreneur resident. So you, a lot of people may not know that what that role is. What did yeah. that role mean, mean to you? And did you enjoy it? I think it means a lot of different things to a lot of firms and people. I think for me, I think a lot of time it's kind of like a halfway house for entrepreneurs that yeah. don't know what to do next. Absolutely. Uh, and so it was nice because you get to breathe a little bit and there's nobody who kind of, they pay your salary and they take care of you. So in that sense, it was, it was nice. Um, it's also a confusing time because that you were asked all the time, what are you going to do next? And I think, uh, I didn't have a very good answer yeah. to that. You're kind of like the, 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 I'm just realizing this. You're kind of like the friend who's in the guest house. They're happy to have you there. <laughs> they're gonna, they're willing to pay for break, breakfast and the rent free. But hey, a few weeks go by and they're like, hey, what are you thinking? You exactly looking in the, right. in the want ads? <laughs> and I think like a, a VC firm, I didn't know that you think of it as a company, but it's often just a group of people hanging out together. Yeah. And well, the, in a lot of cases, I, I, I would not be able to relate to that. But yes. <laughs> most cases. I guess I was trying to just figure out what I wanted to do, like because that this company that we started didn't have a big kind of outcome. I was obviously worried that people wouldn't you know, hire you or invest you in you again because that you hadn't kind of like made a big return. And so I think it took a bit of time and it wasn't really until I moved over here where I think they're interesting with Europe and the U.S. is that in the U.S. there's like a beautiful optimism when it comes to entrepreneurship that we don't really have in the same way in Europe, uh, where over here, you know, if somebody pitched, let's build a rocket and go to Mars, then over here people go, like, that's incredible. Like, yeah, let's do that. And it's quite literally a, a startup <laughs> yeah. or two. And in yeah. Europe, you would be like, why would we do that? And you say, nobody's done that before. Are you sure it's a good idea? Yes. Um, and so I got very smitten by the New York kind of startup community and, mm. and the U.S. in general. Yeah. My wife is German and she often talks about that um, that that difference where yeah. in, in Germany, it's for the most part, it's your, these are the jobs you're supposed to have at this age. And yeah. this is the training you get for that. Uh, and why would, why would you want to be a composer? Why would you want to be an actress? Totally. What are you thinking? And that's all the things she is. So yeah. uh, she loves the, the West coast vibe because of that. And I think, you know, sometimes people ask me back in Europe, like, well, you know, is it because of the funding levels and stuff like that? I think at least from Scandinavia, I'm from like, it's also very much just, the attitude, like, you know, yeah. like, you know, how much do people just want to go out and try to do something, even though it might not make that much sense at the time? Do you think that's changed over the years? Because I've only been, I mentioned earlier, I'd been to Copenhagen. I've been to a few places in Scandinavia. And right now it's buzzing. Yep. It is. They've definitely caught the bug themselves. Yep. Have you been back recently to see what that's like? Sure. Like you can definitely feel that's a lot of stuff going it's on. Different. And yeah. And Scandi, like there's companies like Spotify and Just yeah. Eat and Sendesk and other big companies yeah. coming up. And I think some of the founders are now coming back mm. um, and kind of showing that this is possible to launch it from. So they definitely have the bug there too, which is great because the world needs most entrepreneurs. Okay. So you're, you've now had your time at the VC fund Did that turn into anything or was that just a great middle ground? 
to it turned next. out into a business that we tried to make that didn't work either. This is this is like confession out. Um, yeah, I think which people was, can relate. <laughs> which we called Basno. It's still around, but it's not. It never became a big thing. And Basno was this idea that you needed in, in the offline world. We have all these things that shows authenticity, like uh, trophies and medals and mm. certificates. And on the internet, we don't have that. And so uh, this is way before Bitcoin. We try to create like a way to uh, authenticate kind of digital goods. And so uh, if you run a New York marathon, you'll get a medal, you know, like a physical one. And then you'll get like our platform is being used to to send you a digital version, for example. Okay. But it never became a big thing. And so it kind of became part of a pre-hype, which is this you know, halfway house for entrepreneurs trying to figure out what to come mm -hmm. up with next. So when we talk about your first million and you say you're an investor and you've had these things not work out, what is, is pre-hype the thing that worked out or is it the result of the thing before it working out and now you want to spread that? I think in many ways, a lot of the thing that happened for me that worked kind of came together at the same time. And yeah. so pre-hype was basically my place where, you know, I wanted to work with other people I liked. I wanted to build cool stuff. I wanted to do a little bit of advising and everybody thought that was horrible, disorganized. And so I was like, Hey, if I just make a company that does that, then people yeah. will get off my back. And so one of the first things that happened in pre was I met my two co-founders at BarkBox, Kali and, and Matt. And Bark then grew very quickly and, and became kind of a well-known and, and big startup. Well, let's spend more time at BarkBox yeah. because I, I, I definitely skipped over it. <laughs> so can you talk a little bit about sure. what it was and, and is? And So, uh, so Prehype I saw as being kind of like this place where entrepreneurs, second-time founders could come and hang out a little bit. And as part of that, I spent a lot of time meeting people who are in between startups. And two people I met was Kali Strife and Matt Meeker, who are these incredible people that I wanted to hang with. And so we came up with this idea of making what we thought would be Disney for dogs. So a company that would build stuff that would make dogs happy. And so we, we start out by doing a box, which is a monthly subscription box. This is about seven, seven eight years ago. And, uh, and suddenly it just really took off. And so we built this very large company with hundreds of millions of dollars in revenue, basically trying to deliver on that promise. And so Matakali was kind enough to let me still work with the pre-hype kind of organization while I was, I was working with them. And so I managed to build these two things up at the same time. Mm. Meanwhile, over at pre-hype land, we helped build startups. And so there was companies like Managed by Q and Roman and Enco and a number of startups. Hit after hit. Yeah. That's <laughs> a lot fantastic. of stuff that didn't work, but where, where the, uh, where, the founders that was kind of part of our network would spin out and build companies. So it's a startup studio. Would you call it that? Is it fair to say? Because we have a studio, so we we enjoy that model, but some people... Yeah, I'm, I'm not sure I love the studio word because I think it it's often kind of represent a lot of bad things. What I see us as being more is more a network of entrepreneurs that is helping each other, more so that you know, a studio hiring people to build a company. So a co-op. Yeah, yeah. I think a co-op or union. That's interesting. Hmm. We might have to change our <laughs> thinking, you know, our branding, because studio is very scary to investors that we talk to yeah. and to people in general. And we're like, no, we're just building products that are for us and for founders that we know yeah. and doing it in a more organized way. And I think it's very much the same thing. You know, we have tools, we, we help 
each other. We obviously, because we've had a few successes now, we have access to capital. We have access yeah. to a number of different things. But I think the problem is, of course, that most of the talented people that have come through pre-hype, they don't want a boss. And so yeah. if you, if the logic is very much that you should come here and work for us, then I think you're deselecting yourself in the town. So I see myself as, I haven't found a good title, but I see myself more of a caddy, like somebody like a golf caddy, somebody who carries other people's clubs and, and kind of help them sometimes when they're taking the driver and I don't play golf, so I don't know, but like, yeah, uh, they, uh, they, they, you know, kind of give them advice on kind of like how to be a star rather than necessarily trying to get somebody that would just work on the ideas that I have. Yeah, that's fair. Okay. So you, you, you're more likely to take on a, a pre-baked idea and help them make it something yeah. than to build them from in-house because even if they say at the beginning, this is what I want to do. And I like this setup. It, there's that kind of pull. Yeah. yeah. We, so we don't, kind of have an application process. We right. more have people who find us and get introduced to the network. And the way that we finance it is that we build startups together with a lot of big companies. And yep. so we run the incubation programs for a lot of Fortune 500s. And in many ways, we have all these incredible entrepreneurs who are really good at solving problems. And we have all these big companies who have a lot of problems, but don't have good methodology for, for solving them. And, and by allowing our entrepreneurs to basically work on these projects, they buy themselves the time to tinker around what they want to launch themselves. And then when they're ready, they, they launch their own thing and they're off to the races. Yeah. And so do you consider BarkBox to still be your the company that you work at? Sure. So like these things are now very separated, right? You know, like BarkBox is kind of like much bigger and yeah. much more known than pre-hype is. And so uh, I get to kind of like have two desks and kind of run back and forth. Hopefully like we're helping each other, right? You know, for we... We test a lot of the methodology we invented pre-hype at Bark, and we a lot of the talent that's come through pre-hype has has kind of gone to Bark, and and then we use a lot of the case studies at Bark and a lot of the experimentation we do at Bark to kind of like teach best practices uh, when we work with our corporations. This episode is brought to you by me, Arlen, the host, and I'm going to use this time to promote my book. It's About Damn Time, which is now available in pre-order. It comes out May 5th, 2020. You can order it now at prh.com slash it's about damn time. Thanks. And so what was exciting to you right now? Is, is that, I mean, do you feel like you've, that you're now fulfilling the dream part of it? Because this sounds really exciting to me. You get to, it sounds like you have a freedom and you yeah, have a certain yeah. resource of freedom. I know. think so. Like I, I'm in a good, I think, you know, in many ways, the way that I think about success is not on one vector. You know, I'm a dad and I'd like to be a good father. You know, I'd like to be a good husband. You know, I know that if I don't take care of my mind and my body, that will crash at one point. And so for many ways, in many ways now, I think the way that I'm trying to define success is not how do I become the richest person or the most well entrepreneur, but how do I create like a, a holistic rich, rich life? And I, I haven't found that many people that talk that game. Mm -hmm. I've made this eight plus one framework for how I can think about being purposeful around those things. But I guess like I'm in a, in, in a good headspace these days because. Yeah. It reminds me a little bit of, or a lot actually, of the conversation I had with Justin Kahn a few episodes back. And I think he's in the pretty much the same kind of, he just had his first child. He's been married. 
And he said he used to, this is an episode we did if you, you know, check it out if you're listening. He said he used to just be boom, boom, boom. What's the next gig? What's the next thing? What's the next dollar? And over time when he had it, when he, when it kind of was rained upon him, he was like, oh, that was fun for a couple of years. Yeah. Let me figure out what life is really supposed to be about, yeah. what it's really about. Of course, not taking away from the actual true freedom that you do get to now do that because that is... It's true. Like you, I, I, it, there are a number of uh, millionaires and billionaires who, I fi- who are finding themselves now yeah. <laughs> because they have the time to do so. Yeah. And I think oh, hopefully you can do the same thing. Yeah. You know, I know you used to work in music, but I was out with some young entrepreneurs the other day and they took me to kind of like a ping pong kind of club. Yeah. And there was like a jazz band playing. Oh, yeah. I've been there. Are you the fat cast? Yeah. There? I've been there. So, uh, that's funny. And you know what I was thinking? Like, I was thinking them and listening to the jazz. And, there's something very inspiring about how they operate, right? So you have like the the person who runs the band and then you have all these musicians that kind of come in, they kind of jam with the band and suddenly like the head of the orchestra points at them and they go and do their little solo. Yeah. But it's a very kind of organic kind of way of creation. And so I think for me, without being like, I guess like I'm super philosophical on it, but like instead of like this idea of like chasing, let me build a startup and let me kind of make sure it becomes the biggest thing. I'm very much in a headspace these days. Like let me find some really good people and let's work on something I find really intellectually interesting. And if I can get those two things to go together, then kind of the skull will take care of itself. Mm. And in many ways, I feel that it wasn't really until I pivoted into that kind of way of thinking that I started to seek success because Previously, it was always about like, oh, this is a good industry and there will be a lot of money here. And when I was kind of like following that kind of path, I ended up never really getting there. Um, So you think to bring it to something that's relatable to the listeners, which you've clearly laid out, is instead of trying to completely write your path and exactly know what's going to happen next or think you possibly can, freeing yourself up a little bit for, for kismet to happen or yeah. for serendipity to happen has really been the thing for you, the unlocked opportunity. Yeah, totally. I, I feel that it is so difficult to build something yourself and it is so statistically unlikely to happen that you kind of like, I feel need to do a few things. You need to work on something that you just really find interesting because the only way you're going to beat anybody else is to work harder than everybody else. And the only way that you can really work that much harder is to kind of be into what you're doing. Otherwise it just becomes work too quick. And then I think it's just really, really difficult. And so, you know, having a few people around you that you can kind of laugh and cry with and going like, why the hell are we doing this shit? This is just so difficult. Mm. I find to be the only way to have the entrepreneurial life being bearable I guess like I'm saying it like there's only one way. There's like a thousand ways of doing it. That's just the way that seemed to be working for me. Yeah, this is your episode. So you get to say it. (laughs) So that it goes back again to that co-op feel. Do you know where that comes from? That instinct of yours? You know what? Denmark is, according to your president, a socialist country. So maybe I've been Uh, uh, inspired by that. I feel in many ways, Denmark, when you live there and you live here, you realize that Denmark is a place where people by default trust institutions. Um, it's a very homogenous country. There's only five-ish million people. And so there's a lot of trust built into the institutions. And so co-ops, both in living and in corporations, like most of the big corporations, like the Carlsbergs and the Legos and the Novo, Mm. they are actually owned by foundations. They basically have a problem they're trying to solve and they're optimizing against that instead of shareholder value. And so I think this co-op mentality is maybe- Impact first thinking. I think it's probably like it's ingrained into 
to Danish people. So mm-hmm. maybe there's a little bit of cultural heritage there. Sure. And then how do you go from something that is so homogenous in many ways to a melting pot like New York? And how do you find it? Do you find it to be Well, I think the, exciting? I think, you know, when I moved first to London, when you come to a new city and you're all by yourself, obviously there's not a lot of people who kind of like welcome you. Right. And so mm-hmm. I, I basically got all my community through the gay community in London because uh, you cannot get into any nightclubs in, in <laughs> London. And so the only place that you could kind of like hang out was in it's Soho. A, a place called gay, right? It's exactly. called gay. Yeah. yeah. That, that place. Yeah. That's in, yeah. uh, it's in just, Oak- there's a giant gay club. It's on Oak- Compton street. Yeah. Yeah. So all those clubs around there are like, obviously we're very welcome. And so I've lived in London and in Paris and here, and it's kind of fascinating when you propel into a new country how do you create a social network and for me it was just a lot of social butterflying it constantly Mm -hmm. showing up to any event that was open and and i think you know try to be a forthcoming and kind person and then kind of like building from there yeah i mean that's that's a really good tip because so often we don't necessarily know that we have something to offer and so often too people go to conferences or meetups and they don't really know why they're going or what the, uh, they're trying to talk to the speakers. Mm. That's just the, I'm going to talk to a speaker and they're going to save the day and fix everything. And I know that now from both sides, mm-hmm. but even if you're not in a new city, it's just that new world. Like how do you breach or is it breach or broach? Yeah. One of the two, um, going into like the new, the new world of technology and startups, if you're just learning about it. And one way is to, Put yourself out there and talk, spark conversation, and and yeah. I think that. if you if you walk in with a non needy attitude, yes, I find most people are pretty forthcoming to have a conversation. I find that most people are actually somewhat open if you send like a, a thoughtful email that isn't just like you know give me this or what mm-hmm. can you do for me. If you say hey, you know I very much respect your work and this isn't this. I have these kind of thoughts. You know, here's the concrete thing I would like help with. I find most of the time the people that I know that have some kind of like success, they are, are pretty good of kind of paying forward in that way. Yeah, being proactive and if not reciprocal. A mutual benefit, even getting ahead of it, even starting off when you don't need someone, but saying, how can I be helpful to you? Or these are some skills that I have and I am trying to learn. I am trying to break in, but I'm not asking you for something. I would like to donate an hour of my time to help you in a week or something. Like yeah. That. Or went through your website. I found these five spell mistakes, you know, like Absolutely. maybe. Can you oh, just well, that's me. I do that all the time. <laughs> I don't know if they think it's helpful, but <laughs> I certainly tell let them know. And then because this is called your first million, do you... Consider the wealth part of your life. Did that happen with BarkBox? I think, you know, I've always been pretty frugal and I was lucky back in the MTV days to get a pretty good job. And so I've always been saving. Yeah. I'm not sure. Like it's easier to be, have a million in Danish kroners because it's like a, a 10th of. That's <laughs> right. That's right. Um, We're talking to US it's a, in this case. I, I don't know. You know, a lot of times, you know, people who have success, they might have a lot of money on paper. Right. But, you know, mm-hmm. as you know, you know, it's tough oh, to buy yeah. sandwiches with, uh, with the shares in that way. And so I think that the wealth part, is much less than a million. I mm-hmm. think when you feel you get to a point where you have 
let's say three or four months of kind of run rate, then at least for me, I feel like you get a little bit less panicky and you can mm. start to take decision a little bit based on what you think is the right thing to do than, than just uh, like kind of like what you feel you have yeah. to do. Being out of debt also helps, which is a very recent feeling uh, <laughs> personally. But yeah, if you can get runway is one of the, the absolute biggest game changers there is yeah. because if you're constantly choking on your on the exhaust of what what's right in front of you basically it's just not conducive for creativity and for long-term thinking which is so important that that's wealth generation is long-term thinking right yeah. that's what creates it can't do that if you're worried about how to pay the rent and i think compounding kind of interest and, and mm -hmm. things like that yeah i kind of um i have a question for you though yeah sure. which is uh weird so you know i love what you do and what this podcast represent the whole thing. I feel that we're in such a sensitive time where people who are you know, not part of minority often would like to be helpful, yeah. but it seems that we have sometimes so little authenticity to even like ask that, that sometimes even when you feel you ask, you, you almost feel you intrude on somebody else's kind of cause or, sure. or kind of like, and so I hope it's not too weird a question, but like I, if you've had a little bit of success and if you, you know, have thoughts to share, like how can you be helpful? Right. And are you, like, can you even ask the question? I guess You can my... definitely ask the question. I'm always going to be personally and many people that I know are going to be always pushing towards the people who ask the question. In fact, even today on Twitter, and I, and you can look it up today on Twitter, someone asked, it's a guy, composer, a German composer who's starting a company of some sort in San Francisco, wrote to me on Twitter publicly and just said, I, I'm starting a company, but I want to start with a diverse workforce, but I live in a white male world with no connections elsewhere. Where do I go? Yeah. And I say this a lot in person with people. There are oftentimes I'm speaking to crowds that it's preaching to the choir, right? But many times I, I speak to crowds that it's a completely different group than what I, I am and my profile is, I guess. And I'm, I am sensitive to the, the white guy in the room who is hearing me talk about white guys, right? And I always kind of say, if you're in this room to begin with, like if you're sitting through this, first of all, that's awesome. Like, first of all, we're going to probably hang, you know, because that is a big deal. The other thing, though, is that they're being uncomfortable for an hour while they get to hear about white, white guys did this and that is nothing compared to how uncomfortable we have been for generations in our entire lives and some intersection, right? So I think they can sit through it. If you're asking, like, how do I, how am I an ally? How do I pay it forward? How do I, I mean, I'm, I love the question and I think more people should ask it. And I think more people should be accepting of the question and not, you know, on Twitter, especially people will attack some people, right? Yeah. If they ask the wrong word or they say the wrong thing. So all of that's to say that I think a lot of it has to start with your thought around it, which I think is actually already pretty evolved and advanced where you're not really thinking about black people or women or whomever as like lesser than or a charity or someone you have to save or any of that. That's really important that you're just sort of like, Where's there an opportunity for me to kind of tap into something that I'm not already tapped into? Another way is to do what you're already doing, 
and just expand it more, expand the net. So right now you've just described this co-op. Go back. I don't know if there are five people working there, a hundred people. I don't know. But there and at BarkBox, look at your team. And you're not necessarily asking about workforce, but I'm saying at this co-op, this startup co-op that is creating millionaires, how many people in that room are black or Latinx or queer or whomever? How many are intersectionally underrepresented? Can you can you put more people in the room to give them the same tools you're giving everybody else? They don't need a manual in any different way, but then you're helping to create these at least paper millionaires and they will take it and run and they will pay it forward and backwards. Yeah. So being a catalyst by doing the same thing you already do on a day-to-day basis, you don't have to reinvent any wheel. You don't have to start a foundation. You don't have to do anything that's that drastic. You just offer the thing you already are an expert at to more people. And I think that itself is underestimated, the power of that. That's awesome. Cool. Yeah. I'll take that. Yeah. I also take that you, in your last podcast, you were talking about just lying and breathing and hearing the water kind of coming in. Like yes. Those two things together. Okay. <laughs> yeah. And you might, what you might do is go do that as an excursion, like a retreat for yourself to think about how you're going to wield the privilege yeah. that you have, that is both born and born into and procured as you've been able to do. And take a couple of days and do that or have a sit down with your wife or however you want to do it. And there's a lot that can be unlocked and also know that you are going to come across some people who you're only trying to be nice to who react in a way that's not nice. And most of that is trauma. Yeah. It's PTSD. We talk uh, quite a bit at BarkBox about dogs and their kind of ability to be a connecting force between people who believe like a different side of the political spectrum. Mm. And so I've been trying to find more ways and avenues to use, for example, the dog company to create like a, a little bit more of a, a discourse because, you know, there's one thing that all dog lovers know is that when you walk down the street and you see something else, somebody else with a dog, you can kind of go, Hey, you know, what kind of dogs do you have? And then you start to talk. I think entrepreneurship is a little bit the same. Like obviously there are some groups that has much tougher time that other groups have. And, and so I'm not dismissing that, but as a founder, I think all founders kind of share the pain of being a founder. Yep. And I think being able to tell the war stories of those, you know, they, they might be different, but they are similar in nature. And I find like, you know, in pre-hype and, and, and working with some of our founders that look different or come from different kind of communities that than I do, we in a good way kind of like forget where we come from. And we're just talking about how we make the best wireframe or how we yeah. make the best conversion funnel or how we tackle this specific thing or how do you deal with hiring somebody and stuff like that. And I think in many ways, like then it's also become much easier for somebody, I think like myself to be helpful because suddenly I don't feel like I'm kind of like worried about what I say. I can just talk about You're the things that we the have work. to do. And people who are on the underrepresented side, all we want to do is work too. Yeah. All we want to do is just get to the work. And not have to spend 80% of the day 
justifying, explaining ourselves. So we're looking for that glorious day too. And that glorious situation that every once in a while, that sweet spot, like, oh, I didn't have to explain anything. I can just get to work on this coding or do this thing. And I think some of that too can come if you're, if you're interested in one more piece. I think when you were talking earlier, and I wasn't even thinking about a, a race or anything, when you were talking earlier, I thought, oh, you'd be a great speaker at some of these co-working spots or some of these companies or funds that, that you would be the only white guy in the room. Hmm. But just talking about your story, just doing that. And so what you do there is you don't say, well, I'm going to do this because this is the, this is the check mark of the underrepresented day. This is one more stop on your, on your tour here. You have that conversation and you've just unlocked several people in the room who you can co-op with, you can work with in some way and they can see, okay, well, what is this company he's talking about? You know, let's see what he, what expertise, oh, you have a great resume. I'd like to hear about your point of view there. I think we don't have enough of that. I know for sure. I just had this conversation on the phone for, a, I was setting up a speaking engagement. So you have these phone calls that you have before you'd speak. One of the things I said was, can I please talk about anything other than diversity on this one? Yeah. This one would be great. We don't have enough of that just you show up at this place, go to this school. Oh, yeah, it happens to be at HBCU. It happens to be a historically black college or university. But you're going to have this topic that is just about the work. Yeah. How about that? Yeah, that's wonderful. Yeah. That's cool. I'm so glad. If we have, if there are somebody listening that love dogs, then on bark.co forward slash jobs, we have a lot of open jobs there. And so. Yeah. Well-paid, great benefits. Great benefits, well-paid. And so we would love to uh, to get applicants from there. On Prehype, we we don't have an application process. It's a little bit of finding yourself into the yeah. network as part of Which the game. Which is a little, it's a little tough. What I would say there, and that's, I think that you should protect that because just on a general basis, that's the secret sauce. Mm-hmm. But what I would say is maybe once a year, you break that, yeah. you break the rule so that you make sure that when you're doing a warm introduction, you made sure that you have a little bit more of the net. Well, maybe open. you can make some introductions. I would love to. I would love to. I know a lot of great people and, and we work with a lot of them at Backstage. Awesome. For sure. But thank you. This has been just an awesome conversation. Thank and you so much for having me on. Really, yeah, really appreciate it. Yeah. And thanks for listening and, and being an, an avid listener. Um, really uh, got a lot from this. Thank you. Hey, it's Arlen. Thanks for listening to this episode. So I would love to keep up with you online. You can find me at Arlen was here on Instagram and on Twitter. That's A-R-L-A-N was here. I cannot wait to continue this conversation with you. You can also pre-order my first book. It's called It's About Damn Time. You can pre-order it at your local indie bookstore. Please do that. Feel free. And online where books are sold, where where, where great books are sold. If you want to go to a specific link, you can go to prh.com slash it's about damn time all together. No no spaces, no slashes, nothing. So prh.com slash it's about damn time. And it'll give you a list of places you can pre-order the book and pre-ordering is huge. The more pre-orders the bookstores see, the more copies they will order and potentially more copies that will get sold and exposed and seen. If you're thinking about getting the book, but you're going to wait until after it comes out, 
I encourage you to pre-order it. May 5th, 2020 is the actual date. So you have plenty of time to grab it, but try to do it between now and then. If you are interested in advertising on your first million, go to yfmpodcast.com and click on contact. You can have yours truly read your ad, which is, I know, lovely. Uh, Or you can send me your own ad. All right. Thanks so much for listening. I'll see you next time.